this is the Sharp End Podcast. I'm Ashley and I'm your hostess for the show. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Designed and developed in the Swiss Alps, Mammut has been making the finest alpine equipment since the 1860s. Driven by a continuous quest for innovation, Mammut's technical clothing, footwear, climbing gear, avalanche safety, and alpine equipment are distinguished by the highest quality, functionality, and safety. They embody Swiss technology and perfection. Mammut, absolute alpine. Thank you to the Colorado Hour Bound School and Sunto for the additional support. So my name is Dave Weber. Uh, I typically split my year between two jobs. Uh, one here in Salt Lake City. I have the privilege of working for Intermountain Life Flight as a flight paramedic and hoist rescuer. And then I spend my summers up in Alaska as a mountaineering ranger for Denali National Park. Dave Weber, thanks so much for coming back on to the show. It's so good to have you back. Oh yeah. Thanks again for having me. I love what you got and what you're doing here with this podcast. And it's always a pleasure to chat with you. So my last episode, um, I chatted with a gentleman who, um, who had a sort of an old in reach device and he, he kind of waffled back and forth of, Hey, should I push this button or should I not? Should I wait? And I think that's, you know, you were, you were letting me know that that's kind of a consistent theme that you've been hearing throughout the Sharpen podcast. And so um, you and I had discussed about doing an episode based on the ins and the outs and the hows and when to call for a rescue. For sure. Yeah. I I think as you and I talked, it did seem to be a common theme on multiple episodes, um, specifically that last one. And I think kind of the a good lens to, to kind of look at this podcast in is realize that they're should have been a bunch of other things that happened before what we're going to talk about. So hopefully you're well prepared, you've made good decisions, you've done everything you could to affect a rescue. And then if all of that fails, or if you're not able to self-rescue or to help your group out, then that's what we're talking about for the rest of this podcast. And, and don't listen to this thinking that this is step one, because um, it should be further down. I, I did really enjoy and agree with what your last guest talked about. And it should be a pretty deliberate and well thought out decision to call for help and not something that you just do in haste um, at the kind of outset of an accident and never kind of out of convenience, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- so this you know, is a last resort. You've, you've, you've planned ahead, you've prepared, um, you, you've done what you can in the field to self-rescue and, and or whatever and nothing else. This is the, to, to what avail, this is it. This is the last resort. Yeah. And I think that should be the ideal is kind of when you or your team realize that self-rescue is not possible, I think is when kind of as a general rule, you should be looking for outside help. Um, and, and both with your prep and your partners and, and where you've chosen to go for that day or on that trip, that all those things should set you up well to self-rescue if something goes wrong. But if that's not the case, then I think that's the time to start considering it. And I think you see kind of people all over the spectrum where some people call really early. As soon as something happens, they're on the phone. Uh, 
And that is their survival kit, which I think that the communications device or the devices that are out there should not be your, your plan or your step A at all. And then also there's people that sometimes wait too long to where mm-hmm. someone then becomes too ill or too sick that then they can't be saved no matter who you call for help. And so I think there's probably a fine line there where you're realistic about what you can do and, and whether or not you can help them and, and not call them too early and then also not call them too late. Mm-hmm. So, so, so obviously, you know, calling for a rescue, when, when I say, Hey, Dave Weber, when do you, when do you call for a rescue? And that obviously is pretty circumstantial. Right. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think it is really easy to kind of armchair quarterback all of these. I think you and I talked about the last time, every one of your guests that you have on this podcast is being extremely brave and coming out and sharing their story and realizing that it'll be kind of out there for the masses and open to critique. And it's really easy to critique things from the comfort of wherever it is you're listening to a podcast from. And and everybody's scenarios and circumstances are different. And I think as much as we can take kind of learning out of these podcasts and realize and kind of be honest with ourselves about when have I been in that situation before um, will is a much better kind of lens to look at look at all these podcasts through. Mm-hmm. Um, you had kind of mentioned too, I, I, you would, you would ask kind of, well, who do I call or how yes. does this even start? And yes. I think currently with the technology out there, that answer is, is, is pretty wide in its breadth. One of the things we do notice, um, probably the two most prevalent ways to get in touch with search and rescue. And, and all of these are going to be kind of the U S centric, um, system, either cellular network uh, with our common everyday cell phones or with a satellite device or a satellite phone. And so who you're calling in those is a little bit different depending on which of those kind of services you're utilizing. With a cellular network, the best thing to do is to call 911. Uh, that is um, in general going to be the best because that dispatch center can one, help to triage and then also help to kind of allocate resources and send resources your direction. With that said, though, uh, calling 911 can be problematic from a backcountry setting. They're often very well versed in dealing with kind of urban response and things that happen at addresses. Um, it will often be the first or second question you're going to get is, what's your address? What's your address? And that rarely applies to a, a kind of the backcountry emergency. And so also, if you just happen to be on one side of the ridge versus the other, uh, if I'm on, say, the east side of the ridge, that might send my 911 call hundred and miles away to the east versus if I was just on the other side of the ridge, that might get in touch with a 911 center that's only 10 miles away to the west. And so there can be some triangulation issues, but in general, it's still the best kind of one-stop shop for who to call because they have that dispatch center and they can kind of divert various resources in your direction. Um, in general, all search and rescue in the U.S. is is run by the local sheriff's office and that is also best reach usually through the 911 system. When you do kind of dive into the satellite side of things, so if you've got a, either a satellite device that you uh, hooks up to your phone and allows you to make a call, or if it's a satellite-specific communication device that you text through or talk through or satellite phone itself, those uh, who that contacts is is usually a couple people. One, it will often contact the provider that you've 
got for that device. Like uh, Ridium might be a common provider that would have service or say Garmin who has a couple devices. Also, it can contact your emergency contact, whoever you happen to put into that device, mom, dad, sister, brother, boyfriends, um, whoever you put on that. And then also it will ultimately and typically funnel through what's called the Air Force Rescue Coordination Center. Uh, the one for all inland search and rescue is based uh, for the lower 48 um, down in Florida. And then there's a second uh, similar organization up in Alaska to deal with all inland or kind of the, the mountain regions of our country. So, um, so you're saying like any, any like in reach device or, you know, Iridium satellite phone, all those calls go through Florida. Typically they will ultimately get routed through there. You can think of that kind of as like the national distress center. So if anything, any of the people push that spot device or push the emergency button on whatever uh, device they're using, that will usually get routed both through the company that you're using, but also or ultimately through them. And that Air Force uh, RCC or Rescue Coordination Center, they coordinate all search and rescue in the lower 48 states and then help to kind of dispatch, figure out where you are, and then find local resources that can help with that. Um, So it's pretty slick system. And and that way it it makes sure that all these kind of uh, emergency or SOS signals are then picked up by one agency and not picked up by multiple agencies that are then dispatching a variety of resources and towards one event. Hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So somebody in Florida living by the beach is taking, <laughs> taking calls. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I, didn't, I had no idea. Actually, yeah. Air force personnel down there kind of routing and, and, and dealing with all of those calls, the real ones and the, the accidental ones that go off. But that's who you should call. I would say that either use your device in with that emergency mode or call 911 from a cell phone if you have service. Okay, and it's important to add here that if you are an American Alpine Club member, you also want to call Global Rescue immediately so they can get involved either to start start the rescue or to help coordinate it. And, and I will talk more about the AAC rescue benefits at the end of the show, but just know that Global Rescue requires you to notify them immediately to qualify for assistance. Okay, and then what about, you know, Coast Guard and Life Flight? How do, where do they fit in? Yeah, so that those... Those are all kind of different resources. So you might have kind of local search and rescue agencies or Coast Guard or military. Those are resources that will be dispatched by an agency like the RCC. They will say, okay, here's the people we're going to contact and send that towards you, depending on where it is, how many people there are, what kind of situation they're dealing with. They will determine who they send out uh, based on the specifics of each call. And so gotcha. that's not really something we as a, as a backcountry user need to uh, kind of worry about when you're making a call, you're calling for help and saying where you are and what's going on and kind of how many people there are that need help. Um, and they take it from there. Okay. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it, it take some of the hopefully workload off the people that are dealing with whatever backcountry emergency. So then, so then if, so say you have an inreach and, um, so there's, I mean, there's so many different devices out there. What, which device do you recommend and, and why? 
That is a great question. And I would love if somebody was paying me a bunch of money to tell you <laughs> this is the best, but they're not. But in reality, the, the great thing that is happening is all this technology is getting cheaper. It's getting less expensive and it's getting more user-friendly. And so all those things, we have a bunch of things out in the market right now, and you hear about kind of spot devices and in-reaches, and there's uh, a new one even called the Somewhere Global Hotspot that'll allow you to essentially turn your cell phone into a satellite phone with this kind of portable satellite unit. There's satellite phones, but all of this technology is getting better and more uh, accessible to kind of the general population. Um, So I would say there's a ton of things out there that are good to great in for this use. The one piece of, of advice I would give when looking at advice is one that will allow two-way communication. So meaning I can either text you from the field and then rescue personnel can text back or that we can call back and forth. That alleviates so much of the questions that were often had when all you would get was hey, someone pushed some device here and says there's an emergency and all you get is coordinates and an elevation. So that's all we knew. We don't know how many people, we don't know what's going on. We have known nothing before sending resources that way. Um, And so I think the two-way communication is the key piece of whatever device you're looking at. So um, if I had any advice to give, it would be that. Something that allows you to have conversation or dialogue back and forth with SAR personnel um, so that you can best kind of uh, provide information and then also they can respond in a manner that's appropriate with enough resources for for whatever your circumstance might be. So that is a huge um, tip. So, I mean, you know, if I was to press the SOS button, if I didn't have two-way communication on my device, um, you know, that yeah, the rescuer doesn't know if if I have a patient that's bleeding out or if right. I, or if, you know, we, if maybe it's a broken ankle, but it's stable and we can last the night. So, you know, don't rush out. We can manage until you can get here. Absolutely. And it, it, I think it goes on kind of both ends of the spectrum. There's, there have been a ton of just misfires or people that accidentally push the button or it gets bumped in their pack before they had really good lock modes on them. And so it was nothing. And you're sending a full kind of search and rescue response mission that direction, or just the opposite of like, ah, this doesn't seem like this is that important. So we're going to put it off. And then maybe it is somebody or multiple people that need help. And so for a variety of reasons, two-way communication is is ideal. And the good thing is now it's readily available with tons of these devices. So um, what, you know, that's a double-edged sword. So, you know, these devices are getting, um, are getting cheaper, you know, they're getting more affordable. Um, they're getting smaller and lightweight. The batteries are lasting longer, um, which allows for more people to access these devices, more people to go in the backcountry with these devices. Um, and sort of this, this notion of, um, I can call for help and get myself out of the situation with a push of a button. So what do you think about that? You are absolutely right. It is, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, everybody should be listening to this from that perspective that this is that last resort or I have exhausted all of my either skills or resources to try and be self-sufficient and self-rescue here. And so this is that step at the end of that kind of decision-making tree. But as you mentioned, it 
unfortunately, because of accessibility and ease of use, that people go out with the mindset of like, oh, I might push it a little harder than my skills would allow or in conditions that I shouldn't be because I have this device. And there are so many things that can stop a search and rescue mission from either getting off the ground or being successful weather and personnel and all kinds of things. So it cannot be what you rely on as your survival kit or as your plan A or B. It should be well down that list of, of kind of what you have in your bag of tricks, well behind kind of coursework and training and appropriate equipment and good partners that can deal with whatever might come your way. But I think you, you said it, you hit it right on the head when you said, yeah, they are very accessible and a lot of people are carrying them. And, and I think uh, equal number of people are probably using them uh, when perhaps they should be better prepared when they go out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. And I think that's the underlying uh, take home point here is just, is be prepared. And, you know, and that's, and they, we, we do have these resources. So, I th- just like we talked about, it's kind of a, it's kind of a spectrum or a continuum of, you know, people that are kind of trigger happy with, with these devices, uh, and people that, you know, have so many, um, fears in the back of their mind before they push it, for instance, uh, oh my gosh, I'm going to put somebody else's life in danger to come rescue me or, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to afford, whatever this is going to cost me or, uh, or I, you know, or say I have the device and you're the one who was injured and I don't want to press the button because I don't want you to get charged. And, you know, I don't want you to get mad at me for pressing the button because you can't afford to, or whatever, all these, you know, sort of repercussions that we're talking about. Um, what if, when we're thinking about to, to press or not to press. Yeah. I, you know, I think you brought up a bunch of great points and what I heard in all of that is you describing thinking this out thoroughly. And if that is what's happening in the field, then that is great. And if you need the help, you should push the button or you should call for that help. But it shouldn't be before you've thought about some of those things. As long as people are are kind of prepared to deal with uh, kind of the the general emergencies out there and, and have the skills to do so. And then when you realize, hey, I'm in over my head here and I need help, then you should call for that help. Um, I think the kind of take-home point today is we should just set people up well for, okay, if you do call, when do I call? If I do call, what do I say? And like, what should I expect? And what's this process look like? And we're just, hopefully we can all assume that we are all getting the training and being prepared to go out to handle what we might face in the backcountry, and when when kind of circumstances overwhelm us, then you've got other people out there that are more than happy and capable of coming to help you out. Uh, yeah, that's what they're trained for. That's their job, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and you know, I, I think some of the the piece you brought up a good one about kind of the cost, and that's one that comes up all the time. And, oh, yeah. and thankfully, in the in the U.S. Um, specifically. It is generally a free service. Search and rescue, regardless of where you're at in, in our country, is generally free. There have been a couple of times where either states or local counties have um, gone after a, a 
someone that has called for help and and sought to be reimbursed for those costs. And that is usually or almost exclusively when those people make their situation worse. Like they get hurt and they continue on in their trip and they they make it either harder for rescuers or that they make the situation worse by, yeah, I was hurt and not doing well, but I kept going instead of stopping to get help. And there's been a couple times where that has, has been attempted to be enforced. But in general, when you call for help and you get help in the States, uh, it is a free service. Oftentimes the line of where that changes is once you get kind of handed between search and rescue personnel off to kind of EMS or the hospital system or ambulances, that's when people usually will be charged for things, uh, just like you would if you called an ambulance to your house uh, for a medical or a trauma emergency. But but by and large, state, federal, and um, all other lands in our country, it's a it's a service that is that is free for those that need it, and and that's been pretty well upheld. Um, so I think that's something to maybe take out of kind of the equation a bit. I think what shouldn't be taken out is just realize you're always putting other people at risk, and and those personnel are often understanding of those risks and willingly and knowingly take them on. Um, the times when they get to be a higher risk or anytime it's a really prolonged rescue or anytime we bring in air resources, those are times where, yeah, undoubtedly you're adding more risk to the game, but, but hopefully all of those people are well-trained and, and have gotten a practice enough at those techniques so that they're in a place that, that they can do them as safely as possible. But I think everybody should be kind of cognizant that you are asking other people to come out in into likely uh, technical terrain or difficult terrain or in, in harsh weather to come and help you. And so I would say just make sure that it's it's necessary when you do that. I think very rarely do search and rescues happen on kind of the bluebird daylight hours. Right. You're often asking people <laughs> to come out in less than ideal conditions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so but again, if you need it, ask for it. But Man, if I you think, don't. Yeah, I think that that's going to be incredibly relieving for a lot of these listeners is, is um, you know, knowing that they can remove that idea that it's going to cost them a fortune and they're going to be paying this off for the rest of their life, you know, um, and being able to separate the the rescue cost because there are a lot of search and, vo- search and rescue volunteers from the, the medical help that they would you know, potentially need, need to pay for later. Right. And, and there are, you know, when kind of the air ambulance or the ground ambulances get involved, then that's where we start to see some cost incurred, but there are great resources out there for people specifically through the AAC. You, as part of your annual membership, you get a global rescue plan that covers up to a certain amount. That's kind of their basic plan. You can add on to that and buy more um, kind of comprehensive insurance through Global Rescue. So if that is a concern of yours, I think being an AAC member, having some of that rescue insurance can can go a ways to alleviate some of that and might help with some of those kind of medical issues or other costs that might be incurred later down the line, um, specifically and when you're away from home or when you're out of the country as well. I think that's a great resource for for folks listening. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so then, <clears throat> so we kind of 
touched on what happens when you call 911. You got you get sent to a giant dispatch center in Florida, um, unless you're in Alaska, then in which case you get sent to a dispatch center in, in Alaska. Um, and, the, you know, when you, if you call 911, um, what kind of things should you, should you be saying um, to the dispatcher on the other line? Yeah, that's what, a what terrific question. Yeah. Um, I, I think because, as I mentioned before, that the Rescue Coordination Center, they're much more familiar with dealing with these types of responses. But because cell service is becoming so prevalent in our mountain areas and in kind of the wilderness regions, more and more calls are being initiated through a cell device and going to a 911 dispatch where those people are way more familiar with kind of the classic urban medical response and fire response or police response that we're all more familiar with. And so first thing is making it really clear to them, this is a backcountry emergency. I'm in the mountains can be even just that simple saying can be really helpful for them to get off the track of what's your address? What do you see around you? things that aren't relevant to the person calling in from the mountains. I kind of boil it down for people making that call to think about the things I need to tell them are kind of the who, what, when, where, and whys of your situation. Um, kind of think about what you want, where you're at, what's going on. Maybe if you know what type of resources you want, those are things, but I boil it down to the kind of who, what, when, where, why is a really good kind of starting point. I would also recommend writing things down before making a call. If it's a radio, a sat phone, or a cell phone, realizing that kind of the the coverage or your reception might be spotty at times. And so you might only get in part of your message before a phone cuts out or your line drops. And so having things pretty succinct and just spending a short amount of time to kind of write down the answers to those things can greatly uh, increase kind of the efficiency of your call, especially in an emergent kind of circumstance. We uh, at Denali have kind of an initial report format. So the questions we're going to ask you, uh, things that we ask, the first thing is, do you need assistance? Just to make sure, okay, that's what you're calling for. Um, And then we ask for name and contact info. So who am I talking to and how do I get back in touch with you in case this call drops so that Um, We don't wait to get that at the very end of the line. After that, then we'll start to ask things like, where's your location? What's the patient status and kind of patient demographics? Like how old and what's gender of patient? Uh, Then what's the mechanism? Like what is the problem? Just quick, big picture, fall, heart attack, something medical so that we can kind of differentiate there. Is there a medical history for this patient or these patients? Um, what kind of clothing and equipment do you all have? And then what kind of experience do you have in the location that you're at? And these, that kind of six or seven bullet points for us in our search and rescue response answers a ton of questions for us to allow us to better kind of tailor um, the resources that we allocate for this um, specific instance. So thinking about that, I think as a caller is, again, it goes back into that who, what, when, where, why, like, give us kind of the brief picture. It doesn't have to be a kind of full description of everything going on and realizing that with backcountry communications, you might lose cells. So think about what are the really important things that if I only have 30 seconds on this line to get across, that's the stuff to get across. And I I can't emphasize enough having it written down so that you're not kind of 
spitballing this off the top of your head and missing some of the really key details uh, if you are to lose contact uh, okay, with Dave, whoever you're talking to. Dave, can you time me? So I want to try this. So, um, yeah. so at 30, sec- at 30 seconds, go ahead and just cut me off. Um, okay. And I'm going to just spitball it. I'm not going to write things down, but I am going to spitball it. Um, and this, you know, as an, as an hour bound instructor, um, man, I can't tell you uh, how, how, how many problems I've had with, with sat phones, which is what we use as our backcountry right. um, communications, you know, for emergencies. And, and sure enough, the call will drop. The call will drop. <laughs> Guaranteed. That's like the one certainty. Yes. Okay. So, um, all right, here we go. You're on the clock. Right. Am I? Okay. Ready to go. Uh, hi, this is Ashley Asapi. Uh, if, the call gets disconnected. My phone number is 907-360-ABCD. I'm um, at the southwest corner of Lost Lake, just outside of Seward, Alaska, um, right on the right on the water's edge. I have a 27-year-old patient with a broken femur. Um, they have no known allergies no they're not taking any medications we need a rescue stat that's it was that it i gave you an extra two seconds but (laughs) you were doing so well i didn't want to cut you off so so i okay so who meaning like me and them what happened where we are yeah and what you needed perfect you hit on all the big things and you could tell that you had either rehearsed it or had it written down. And hopefully the listeners hear how fluid that was versus if you had just done that all with no notes or with no kind of format to do it in, it comes out really jumbled. And and oftentimes you hear things that might seem important or you might say things that seem important to you, but from our standpoint, receiving the call might not be that helpful um, kind of in our planning. And so the, the, more that you can kind of have prepared ahead of time, usually the better those calls will go. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And nice then, work. Yeah. Thank you. Whew. I always get. You passed. We'll yeah. come and look for you. Okay, great. Um, and then, okay, so great. So uh, you are going to come look for me. And yeah. uh, so, you know, dispatch sends a, a crew to the, what did, I, what did I say? Southwest corner of Lost Lake. Um, and, and then what happens? That's great. And I think this is one of the themes uh, that you and I talked about that has kind of come up a, a few times in in your prior podcasts. Um, I think some of the general advice to give, once you do make that call for help, and you say you've already tried some type of a rescue or you've been moving around, once you make that call, that is time to stay put. You told us where you are and us trying to find you at a given location is difficult enough. If you are moving a moving target that exponentially increases the difficulty of our job. So once you call for help, stay put. The second piece of that, be really visible. Get out into the open. Have every colorful thing you've got laid out or flapping in the wind or be waving it. So movement and color are two things that can really help, especially people searching from the air. Uh, noise as well, having a whistle. I, I, maybe some of your listeners had heard, you can yell for only a finite amount of time. It's really tiring. 
Um, a whistle though, you can blow a whistle and, and that's one, it carries a long distance and two, you can do it for a long period of time. Um, so to make yourself like be visible, be loud, be found, uh, kind of the opposite of the leave no trace ethics, you know, be really obnoxiously visible and, and, uh, uh, audibly apparent from wherever you're at. Um, I think one of the other pieces that came up, especially with some of the um, rescues that have been talked about on your podcast that involved helicopters, people were often confused with what to expect when that helicopter did show up or um, some of the things it did. So almost always when a helicopter is coming to uh, either survey the scene or to effect a rescue, the first thing that's going to happen is a reconnaissance flight. They're going to just get eyes on. It's very rare that a helicopter is going to come see you, stop and land, and be done. Oftentimes, that first flight might just be to get one person in the air with eyes on it to be like, okay, I located them. It looks like there's two or three people down there. Looks like we need to take all of them out or one of them out. And so sometimes they might get really close, but it, to some people, it can look like, oh, they don't see me. They're just like scanning around and then they leave. And oftentimes that's just the end of that reconnaissance flight where they're going back to get either equipment or personnel to do whatever type of rescue they deemed appropriate. And so realize that is going to happen a majority of the time, that recon flight, and they're not not seeing you and they're not just leaving. They're just going to get more people or gear. Um that's a good thing to know when, because I've heard people say, I, I saw this and I thought I was being saved and then the helicopter flew away and it, it's like, ooh. Right. Yeah. And in addition to like the heartbreak of them flying away, then they're like, oh no, maybe it's up to us again. Then they start moving again. Helicopter comes back and they're gone. Mm-hmm. And so once you call, stay put. Um, and I think it usually for someone on the ground, you'll know that the helicopter sees you kind of when it stops moving. When it, If it stops and kind of looks like it's hovering in place, usually that means they've got eyes on you um, or they're, they're scanning in that specific location pretty thoroughly. You can help from the ground. So you might not be in touch with the, the helicopter itself. You might be talking to a dispatcher on the phone, but usually that dispatcher is then in contact with rescue personnel or people on that aircraft. So you might, through kind of a game of telephone, be able to communicate with them and say, vectoring in a helicopter is really useful for you to look up into a blue sky or even a cloudy sky and see a flying object is pretty easy for those rescuers to look down on kind of a blank slate of maybe green vegetation or white snow or kind of mountain terrain, it can be really hard to see people. And so although you look up, you're like, I'm right here. And it might seem really obvious. It's not so from above. So things that can help is you just giving the helicopter direction. Uh, If you think of the helicopter kind of as a clock or in clock directions with 12 being the nose of the aircraft or the front of the aircraft and six o'clock being the tail, you can say, hey, I'm at your six o'clock. You need to turn around or I'm right at your 12 o'clock, um, continue coming forward and I'll tell the helicopter when you're right above us. And so it can help to kind of vector in. And then again, three o'clock direction would be out kind of the right side of the helicopter if, if you were looking at those. And then nine o'clock would be the, uh, the left side of the helicopter. Um, so be prepared for that kind of recon flight and return. Then sometimes during uh, 
the, the kind of rescue phase, the helicopter might get pretty close to you. There are times in whiteout or really dry, kind of dusty or dirt um, landscapes that that helicopter might want to use you as, vertic- as, as a visual reference. And so they might want to land right to you or right to a member of your group. And so if the helicopter is kind of coming in and, and you are moving away and it seems to be following you, usually what they want you to do is to stay put. That pilot is often using you, one, for maybe a direction wind, but maybe to see through some of the white blowing snow or the brown blowing dirt. And so, again, just like staying put in the big picture once you call for help, when a helicopter is there or seems to be coming in for land, you should also stay put. Um, And then follow any and all directions of the crew. Someone from that crew will get out and come help either direct you or kind of motion you with arms or actually come out and physically get you to bring you kind of towards that helicopter. And so just follow all crew member instructions is, is some of the best advice I can give in dealing with kind of what will happen, especially on an air response. But you can think about vectoring people in on the ground too. If you hear people below you yelling or to the left or right of you, kind of relaying that through your phone or whoever you might be talking to on a sat phone or comms device. Is there anything that, that we can do from the ground to sort of prep the scene for the helicopter? Yeah, usually we talk about with most kind of rescue helicopters um, in the civilian side of things and, and, and some of the lighter military aircrafts, anything pretty much under the 40 or 50 pounds uh, weight is going to move. It's going to fly away. And so if you're kind of looking around in that zone, you want to usually have, they often talk about 100 by 100 feet diameter or circle for a helicopter, a lighter helicopter to get into and have enough clearance for the rotors. They like to be on flatter ground if possible and clear of kind of any um, uh, low debris like bushes and things like that is ideal. Um, Most of the kind of rescue pilots are pretty adept at landing in things that aren't ideal. But if you have a spot, say, that's just, you know, 50 yards to your right or close enough that you could get your patient to or either even get to, they're capable then of landing maybe in an easier spot for them and then just walk into the patient. So flat, free of kind of all trees and obstructions and, and kind of the hundred by a hundred feet is, is generally safe for any of those aircraft. And then anything less than 50 pounds is likely to blow away. So just having that stuff well secured somewhere so it doesn't become an issue when they're coming in and blowing gear all around. Yeah. Or snow too. I mean, if it just snows a foot and then you have all that low density powder snow, um, should we stomp that down or? For sure. Yeah. As, As much as you can do to kind of generally prep the zone. Yeah. If you've got snow, blowing snow can be really disorienting to to pilots and crew. And so as much as you can kind of stamp that down in that kind of hundred by hundred, zone can be really helpful. That's a great idea. And I think if you kind of have that picture of the urban helicopter landing pad at the hospital or wherever you might've seen one as much or as close to that as you can get in the backcountry, it's great. Again, we, we talked about kind of leave no trace ethic before, and that, that's a great ideal for our general backcountry travel. Um, kind of in the rescue side of things, we sometimes jokingly talk about leave no trees, where <laughs> you need to make yourself very visible and also make it safe for these people coming in to help you out. And it is an extenuating circumstance that, yeah, maybe you're pushing some logs over, or carrying stuff out of the way, or kind of manipulating that environment to make it uh, more conducive to a rescue by ground or by air. 
the closing pieces for me is we can't say it enough. I think on all of these podcasts is to be self-sufficient and be prepared, like take the coursework, train with the skills that you learn, have great partners that are willing to train with you. If you have people who are like, I don't want to practice my rescue skills. You shouldn't be hanging out with right. them in the back country because that <laughs> is really who is going to rescue you of a majority of the time is going to be your partners and then have the gear that's useful and also small enough and light enough that you're actually going to carry it. A med kit that's so big that you leave it at home isn't really that useful to you when you're out there. And so just being self-sufficient, I think I said it earlier too, that hope is a horrible risk management tool or hope isn't a strategy. And, and oftentimes I'm sure we've all been guilty of going out just being like, I hope nothing goes wrong. Cause if it does, <laughs> I'm not really prepared to deal with it today. And then I think the last piece is, is if you've been involved in a search and rescue event at any point, I think the two or, or not, um, I think great ways to support your local community because by and large search and rescue, um, personnel are almost all volunteers. And so either donation of your time or donation of funds to your local search and rescue outfit is one of the biggest things you can do to help them continue to do the good work that they do for, for usually free uh, all across our country. Yeah, they are. They're an amazing first responder resource we have here that, that spends countless hours and, and tons of their free time and resources to, to be ready to help people when they need it and, and whatever you can do to support that. And it's also a great source of training as backcountry travelers ourselves. Um, there's great rescue training that you receive as a search and rescue volunteer. So I think it's another means to kind of up in your, your rescue readiness. As Dave said earlier in the show, rescue services in the U.S. are almost always free, which is absolutely incredible. But in some cases, though, they aren't free and they can be very expensive, especially if the rescuer is a private operator. Okay, so the American Alpine Club's rescue benefits can help offset some of these costs. AAC members get up to $12,500 in rescue benefits, $7,500 of that being from Global Rescue, and $5,000 of that from the club. So it is vitally important, though, that our members understand that neither Global Rescue nor the club pays for or reimburses any medical expenses. Okay, they only pay for the costs directly tied to the rescue itself. So just remember, it's essential to notify Global Rescue immediately or as soon as possible in an emergency to qualify for these benefits. You'll be able to find all the necessary info about the AAC Rescue Benefits at AmericanAlpineClub.org rescue. Thank you to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor. And thank you to the Colorado Howard Brown School and Sunto for being contributing sponsors. The Colorado Outbound School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 55 years. They offer wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and Ecuador. Courses range in 8 to 81 days in length for ages 12 plus and include backpacking, mountaineering, canyoneering, rafting, and rock climbing. Visit www.cobs.org to plan your next adventure. For over 80 years... Sunto has developed the tools to help mountain athletes safely navigate new territory and train for major expeditions. 
Sundo devices are chosen by leading alpinists worldwide for their durability, accuracy, and ease of use. Sundo watches are handcrafted in Finland, and the word Sunto comes from the Finnish word meaning direction. Learn more at Sunto.com. And remember, play hard and be smart.